Welcome to Four Questions Four, the official podcast of Osgood Hall Law School, presenting great conversations about legal education, the profession, and the law. Today, Lauren Waldman, one of Canada's foremost immigration and refugee lawyers, a founding member and first president of the Canadian Association of Refugee Lawyers, a member of the Order of Canada, and an Osgood alumnus, will have four questions for Osgood professor Sean Rehag on the luck of the draw in refugee adjudication. Professor Sean Rehag is the director of the Center for Refugee Studies and the director of the Refugee Law Laboratory at York University. He specializes in immigration and refugee law, administrative law, legal process, access to justice, and new legal technologies. Is that all, Sean? Yeah, more or less. <laughs> yeah. Well, aside from the fact that you've uh, you've done some of the most important studies that have uh, exposed the discrepancies in the decision-making process in the federal court and at the refugee board, and your and have made a huge contribution that way. But you also frequently contribute to public debates about immigration and refugee law, and he engages in law reform efforts in these areas. So welcome, Sean. Let's get started with question one. Much of your research involves quantitative studies of Canada's refugee determination system. That's certainly true, and we certainly are aware of those contributions. So tell me, how did you start doing this sort of research? Um, Well, uh, I uh, came into uh, quantitative research a little bit by accident. Uh, So I was uh, doing my uh, doctorate at the University of Toronto with uh, Professor Audrey Macklin. And uh, my research was about church sanctuary. So unsuccessful refugee claimants who move into churches um, to avoid deportation from Canada. And uh, when I was talking to uh, church groups that provided sanctuary to unsuccessful refugees, I asked them, why are you doing this? And uh, they uh, often said that they were providing sanctuary to refugees uh, because um, people who did, in fact, meet the refugee definition were not being recognized as such because of problems in the refugee determination process. And so I asked, well, well, what are those problems? And the answer that they uh, typically provided uh, was uh, that outcomes in the process came down to the luck of the draw. That is, if you were uh, lucky and you had a a decision maker who was sympathetic to your case, you would get refugee protection. And if you were unlucky, uh, you uh, would uh, not. So I kept on hearing uh, those uh, kinds of arguments made uh, over and over. At the same time, as I was uh, pursuing my doctorate, I was also doing some volunteer work uh, with uh, one of the uh, refugee law clinics in uh, Toronto, the FCJ Refugee Centre. And one day when I was uh, at the clinic, a uh, a refugee claimant uh, came in um, and showed me their uh, refugee uh, decision. And it turned out that the claimant had made a claim uh, saying um, that he faced persecution on account of his sexual orientation. He identified as uh, uh, bisexual. Um, And uh, I read over uh, the decision uh, where the Immigration Refugee Board 
denied uh, the claim, and the decision was super problematic. The decision maker essentially didn't believe that uh, bisexuality was a thing, um, uh, suggested that the, the claimant uh, was not credible about his sexual orientation. Um, and uh, in doing so, the decision maker drew on a whole bunch of problematic stereotypes about sexual minorities. Um, and so, as a, uh, someone with legal training, I was uh, curious what was going on uh, with this reasoning. So I went off and I did some legal research. And uh, I looked for uh, other published cases involving bisexuality. And what I saw was that there were very few refugee claims involving bisexuality that had, been, uh, that had resulted in published decisions. And all of them were negative. Every single one of them was negative. And so I wanted to learn a little bit more about what was going on. Um, and uh, so uh, what I decided to do was to do an access to information request to the Immigration and Refugee Board asking for data about outcomes in um, sexual orientation refugee claims broken down by the type of claim, by uh, claimants who are uh, facing persecution uh, because they're uh, gay men, uh, lesbians, um, bisexuals, uh, and uh, so on. And uh, what I saw when I got the data back uh, was that uh, there were quite significant differences between people who made uh, refugee claims uh, based on um, their sexual orientation uh, where they asserted uh, that they were gay or lesbian. On the one hand, they did fairly well. Uh, and if they asserted that they were uh, bisexual, they didn't uh, do uh, as well. So I found that interesting and I ended up uh, doing a bunch of research uh, in the area. But another thing that I noticed when I saw that data was I thought to myself, hmm, the data that the Immigration and Refugee Board provided me with much more granular information than I expected. They didn't just give me a table of like, here are the here is the success rate in cases involving uh, this group of sexual minorities and that group of sexual minorities. They actually gave me a list of all of the cases um, uh, individually. Uh, with the decision maker and the date of the hearing, uh, the outcome, the country, the claim type. Um, and uh, I realized by looking at that um, data that I was provided that I could uh, actually um, get, um, I could actually use that data to see whether the uh, sanctuary providers were right when they said that refugee claims come down to the luck of the draw. And so I did an access to information request for data on every single case at the Immigration and Refugee Board. I digitized that information. I did a bunch of statistical uh, analysis. And essentially, it uh, showed uh, that at least to a certain extent, um, outcomes appear to hinge on who the uh, decision maker is. It's not the only factor. There are a bunch of other factors, country of origin, uh, claim type, uh, whether or not you're represented, obviously kind of the facts and, and the law are also relevant, but who your decision maker was uh, mattered. So it turned out that the sanctuary providers were right. So that's how I got into this kind of research, and I extended that out to uh, do uh, further quantitative research, not just on the Immigration and Refugee Board, uh, but also on other decision-making processes, including at the federal court. I can say, uh, Sean, that uh, we're all extremely grateful for the work that you did because you uh, exposed 
the significant discrepancies and revealed that there were certain decision makers who had, for example, a, a zero or close to zero acceptance rate and others who had a you know, very, very high acceptance rate. But even more interestingly was uh, your um, work with the federal court, which brought a reaction from the court itself, as you shows the rather dramatic discrepancies between um, the lead grant rates uh, from some judges being extremely low, less than 5%, uh, others being over 50%. So I think we're all extremely grateful for your contribution uh, that you did. So now moving on to question two, does your research suggest that refugee decision-making is biased? Yeah, so that was um, the question that I was uh, most interested in at the uh, at the outset because I was interested in evaluating um, whether the church sanctuary providers were right when they said uh, the system is uh, flawed. Everything comes down to the luck of the draw. People uh, who should be recognized as refugees are not being re uh, recognized as refugees. And I imagine this as a kind of uh, a form of bias or a form of, um, for, to use the legal test, a, a reasonable uh, apprehension uh, of uh, bias. And you can easily imagine how uh, that kind of argument works. If I'm a, a refugee claim, a claimant and I have my claim decided by uh, one of the judges, one of the decision makers that you mentioned, someone who's denied every single case that they've uh, heard uh, over uh, the last uh, several uh, years, I might reasonably be worried that I'm not getting a, a, a fair chance to present uh, uh, my claim. That if my claim is is denied, it's not because uh, I didn't present uh, solid evidence. It's not because I didn't meet the legal test for um, uh, for qualifying for refugee protection. I was just uh, unlucky uh, and had a decision maker who was reluctant to grant me uh, refugee protection. So I think in some cases, in the more extreme uh, cases, I think a, a, an argument can be made that there is uh, a, a reasonable apprehension of bias. But as that, I did... Was that argument uh, tried at the federal court? And, and how successful was it? Yeah, it was tried uh, in uh, the, uh, the federal court. Uh, it's been tried a, a few times. Um, it uh, is typically not uh, successful. Um, and uh, the main reason it's not uh, successful, there is a couple of reasons. One reason is uh, often the evidence that's provided to uh, substantiate uh, the argument of reasonable apprehension of bias is not uh, uh, sufficient. Uh, the courts are, are reluctant to find that there is a reasonable apprehension of bias. The decision makers benefit from uh, presumption that their uh, decisions are, are not uh, biased. And so you need really strong uh, evidence. What might that look like? That might look like uh, expert uh, reports where uh, there's kind of statistical uh, analysis that shows that the differences uh, that are observed are statistically significant and that uh, all of the uh, various factors that might reasonably explain uh, the differences in outcomes across decision makers. For example, if a decision maker um, uh, specializes in uh, cases from a particular country and that country has low uh, overall success rates, that might explain why they're um, uh, grant rate is lower than the grant rate of their colleagues. And so uh, the courts essentially say we would need um, uh, an expert report uh, that would 
uh, assess uh, all of those uh, factors. And I think the courts uh, are right uh, when they insist on on solid uh, evidence. It's not enough to kind of go onto the website where I uh, put some of make these statistics available or a Toronto Star article about a low success rate by a particular decision maker. That's not enough. You need an expert uh, a report. The interesting question, though, is what would happen if there was such an expert uh, report and it did indicate uh, that um, uh, outcomes appear to hinge on who the decision maker uh, is? What should the court um, uh, do with that? Uh, I think in the more extreme um, situations that the courts should be willing to entertain the argument that uh, there is a reasonable apprehension of bias. There's some case law that says no, that you can't use uh, statistics about uh, outcomes uh, to this end. Uh, when the courts say that, they typically say things like, um, to demonstrate uh, reasonable apprehension of bias, you have to show not that there's kind of a difference in outcomes between this uh, decision maker and that decision maker. You actually have to show that there's something wrong in uh, the decisions of uh, the decision maker. Um, so you have to show that there were uh, kind of repeated errors um, uh, that, or that the decision maker is being overturned more frequently um, by uh, the federal court. So there's some case law saying that. I've written a bit on this topic, and I suggest that uh, that kind of reasoning um, is uh, flawed because it confuses reasonable apprehension of bias on the one hand and um, the uh, reasonableness or uh, the uh, errors in um, decision-making on uh, the other hand. And one way of thinking about this is, suppose uh, you uh, are involved in a uh, commercial dispute, um, and uh, suppose that the uh, judge uh, is uh, a key shareholder in um, one of the corporations that's involved in this dispute. Now, suppose that the judge doesn't recuse themselves and decides the case. They have a conflict of interest. They are financially interested in the outcome uh, of uh, the case. So normally there would be a reasonable apprehension of bias. It is, in my view, not an answer to say, well, yeah, there was a financial interest here and there might have been a reasonable apprehension of bias, but there were actually no errors in uh, the decision. That is, the judge didn't make a legal error and therefore... Um, uh, you can't uh, say that the judge uh, was uh, biased. So I think that's to confuse errors on the one hand and reasonable apprehension of bias on the other hand. Another way of putting that point is it's to confuse reasonable apprehension of bias on the one hand and bias uh, on uh, the other hand. So the courts have been uh, reluctant to um, find uh, that there's been a, a reasonable apprehension of bias uh, in these cases. Um, I'd like to see uh, lawyers push uh, the courts a little bit further on this because I do think in some cases uh, there is pretty solid evidence of a reasonable apprehension of bias. That having been said, I do think that, this, that the question of bias is probably not the most important question. I think the most important question is that my research shows that there is a high degree of subjectivity in refugee uh, adjudication. And the question that I'm now most interested in is, Given that we know that there's that subjectivity, and given that we know that there are very high stakes in refugee decision making, if we get these decisions wrong, we may uh, be sending um, people back to countries where they face 
persecution, torture, or even death. So the stakes are very high. We know that there's a certain element of subjectivity in the decision making. To me, the interesting legal question is how do we design fair processes in that context? And specifically, how do we avoid the worst errors that might arise from that uh, subjectivity. My view is the worst errors is a, a false negative decision, that is, uh, not recognizing someone as a refugee when in fact they do meet the refugee definition. And so I've been doing a bunch of work uh, to um, uh, try uh, to uh, propose uh, reforms to the refugee determination uh, process that would uh, prioritize avoiding those sorts of errors. Well, of course, the um, the introduction, finally, of the Refugee Appeal Division was, I think, one of the major reforms that was designed to to correct those errors. Uh, so, so, but I guess it hasn't fully corrected them. A because the RAD also makes errors, and B because not everyone gets gets the appeal. Yeah, there's certainly a problem in terms of who gets access to the internal administrative appeal at the uh, Immigration Refugee Board. Currently, not everyone gets. Um, and not everyone gets uh, access, so that's one problem. But a second problem, I think, is um, that uh, the Refugee Appeal Division, although I think in general it's doing a, a fairly good job, in, in one area uh, I think it's being too deferential to um, first-instance decisions uh, at the Immigration and Refugee Board, and that, that area is, is credibility. Um, and so the, the Refugee Appeal Division, because typically it doesn't directly hear the testimony of uh, the uh, claimant, it does tend to uh, defer to the first decision maker who uh, did hear the live testimony and was able to ask questions of the, uh, uh, of the uh, claimant. Uh, I understand why the Refugee Appeal Division is uh, doing that, um, but uh, I think that a large portion of the subjectivity in decision making that my research has demonstrated, I think a large part of that comes down to different ways of approaching credibility. And I think negative credibility assessments in particular are the thing that it's most important for the Refugee Appeal Division to scrutinize. So I would like to see everyone get access to the Refugee Appeal Division, but I would also like to see the Refugee Appeal Division take a close look at credibility decisions. Well, that, of course, is a perfect segue into the third question, which is uh, it raised an important question about the research that I gather you've done, which is the question of how refugee adjudicators assess credibility. So can you tell us about the experiments that you did in that regard? Uh, yeah, so um, uh, I, I was interested in, in thinking about um, how do um, refugee adjudicators uh, make um, credibility uh, decisions, and I was particularly interested in the question of how can law and um, uh, soft law guidelines uh, help improve uh, credibility uh, decision-making. And one of my worries uh, is that if uh, the courts uh, provide guidance to um, uh, first instance uh, decision-makers saying, you know, you really need to avoid um, uh, this kind of inference. You need to avoid drawing on uh, stereotypes about this group in your uh, credibility assessments. I worry a little bit 
that uh, rather than actually improving credibility determinations, that actually just makes credibility assessments less transparent. And so I was I was uh, worried that uh, uh, that some of the uh, tools that have been used to try to improve credibility uh, decision-making might be leading decision-makers to learn how to make judicial review-proof credibility assessments rather than doing what I think they should be doing, which is um, uh, trying to be as self-reflective as possible about why they believe or do not believe uh, the claimant setting out their doubts, uh, explaining why they're they're not uh, sure about their own uh, decision, and actually facilitating appeals and uh, judicial reviews on credibility. So I was interested in essentially how can we create a kind of a culture where, as a decision maker, if um, uh, the internal administrative appeal or the federal court overturns my credibility uh, decision, says that my credibility reasoning was not reasonable, how can we create a culture where um, I will see that as perfect? I've done my job well as a decision maker because I've facilitated meaningful review of my decision rather than, oh, I haven't done my job well as a decision maker because my decision was uh, overturned. So I'm interested in in um, thinking about that question. What that question um, uh, suggests, though, is that there may be a disjunction between um, the actual causes that lead a decision maker to disbelieve a claimant and the reasons that a decision maker offers to justify that uh, their negative credibility assessment. And so I wanted to do some research to try to understand that possible disjunction. And so with a, a colleague, uh, Hilary Evans Cameron, I ran a research experiment. And what the research experiment did is we had all of the first year um, students at Osgoode Hall Law School uh, serve as a simulated uh, refugee adjudicators. So they looked at a, a case file Um, They had to um, review the file, put themselves in the position of an adjudicator, and um, uh, make a credibility assessment. Do they believe the claimant or do they not believe the claimant? And they had to write brief reasons explaining why they uh, believed or did not believe the claimant. We gave the students some basic guidelines uh, from Canadian administrative law about what makes for a lawful um, uh, credibility Uh, assessment, and we incentivized them. We gave them uh, $10 uh, if uh, they wrote reasons that uh, complied with the guidelines that we uh, provided. So the students could go off and and buy a coffee at the campus uh, uh, coffee shop. Um, And so um, uh, that was the experiment. The uh, case file that we had the students look at was a sexual orientation-based case file all of the students saw the exact same case file with one difference. Uh, In um, a third of the cases, uh, the students just saw the text of the case file. In um, a third of the decisions, the students saw uh, the text of the case file and also a photograph of the claimant. And that photograph uh, contained stereotypical markers of um, 
uh, of uh, gay male uh, presentation. Um, and another third uh, of the students saw the text and a photograph of the claimant with straight uh, male stereotypical uh, markers. And so we, what we were interested in in the experiment was would these photographs and the stereotypes about what uh, sexual minorities and straight folks look like, would um, those images affect A, the outcomes, whether it would people be more likely to believe the claimant if um, the uh, image uh, matched the asserted sexual orientation. That was one thing we were interested in. And the second thing we were interested in is would um, the um, uh, uh, would the reasons um, uh, be transparent in terms of the images having uh, this effect on uh, on uh, outcomes? And finally, the only issue that was at play in this case file was, is the claimant in fact gay? So that was the question, that was the credibility issue that was being um, uh, examined. And there was evidence, other evidence in the text of the file that could lead people to go either way on this. And so, perhaps not surprisingly, what we saw was that students who saw images um, that had the stereotypical uh, markers of um, gay uh, male uh, sexual orientation were more likely to believe that the claimant was in fact gay. Um, and um, students who saw uh, the uh, stereotypical uh, straight uh, markers uh, were less likely uh, to believe uh, the claimant, but that this was entirely non-transparent in the reasons that the uh, students who did not believe the claimant didn't say, well, you know, I applied my gaydar to this photograph, and um, in my view, this claimant uh, does appear to be gay, whatever that means. Um, they didn't say that. Uh, instead, what the uh, students who didn't believe the claimant said was, you know, there were inconsistencies in the evidence, there were kind of, there were vague uh, uh, testimony, um, and I uh, draw negative uh, credibility inferences uh, not from the image, but from um, the inconsistencies uh, in uh, the file. And so the upshot here is that um, stereotypes about what uh, sexual minorities look like influenced outcomes, but it didn't, uh, but that wasn't uh, visible in uh, the reasons. And this is really problematic because, as you know, Lauren, as someone who's done uh, refugee, uh, uh, many refugee cases, virtually all files will have, you know, some minor contradictions uh, here and there uh, in uh, the uh, evidence. Uh, there will always be kind of new information that's added uh, at the, the hearing. Um, and uh, that suggests that when decision makers are reaching for those things, I don't believe the claimant because of the uh, contradictions or the inconsistencies uh, in the evidence. We really need to worry that something else is what is driving the uh, outcomes uh, and that uh, the reasons that are provided don't necessarily track on to what's actually driving the outcomes. And so what I think decision makers confronted with this research should do is they should spend less time trying to articulate a kind of legally valid review proof um, uh, credibility decision. And they should spend more time actually asking themselves, what is it about 
this um, a testimony and this evidence that I don't believe? Why is it that there was a contradiction in this other case and I believe the claimant, but in this case, I don't? I think that um, I think that will improve refugee decision-making and I think it will facilitate review. Yeah, of course, at the, at the end of the day, we, we know that there are so many challenges to refugee determination because you're dealing with people who don't often don't speak the same language, come from different cultures, uh, and you know we the things that we sometimes traditionally look at to try and determine whether people are being credible, like oh he didn't look me in the eyes, and of course in some cultures people don't look people in the eyes, and that becomes leads the person to subjectively say he I don't believe him not because he just he can't stare he can't look me straight in the face and tell and and of course that may have nothing to do with the person being credible given the cultural mores of, of, of the society they grew they grew up in, but so. I've always, my experience is that, um, you know, trying to to determine the credibility of, of a refugee claim is, is so incredibly complex and difficult that it's an almost impossible task, which is why we have so many, so much difficulty all the time when we get these cases that are rejected and then they end up in the sanctuary because so many people become convinced that, that they are in fact uh, victims of persecution. And, and the government, you know, uh, holds on to the, the the determination as the justification for being for saying we're not going to intervene. We'll ask you your fourth question now. Uh, I know you set up a new refugee law laboratory at York University Center for Refugee Studies. What new and exciting research will you be pursuing there? I'm quite excited to hear. Yeah, so I'm uh, really excited with this new uh, refugee law laboratory um, that we've uh, created, uh, which is a, a joint project between uh, Osgood and uh, the Center for Refugee Studies. Um, uh, the Refugee Law Lab uh, is interested in doing uh, research on um, new legal technology in the refugee uh, law, uh, migration law, and border control uh, spaces. And so uh, we're, uh, uh, we're uh, interested in, in learning more about how governments are using um, new uh, technologies uh, in this area. Um, and we're uh, particularly interested uh, in um, assessing uh, those new technologies using a human rights uh, lens. And so the associate director of the lab, uh, Petra Molnar, um, is uh, one of the, the leading thinkers in Canada on this intersection between uh, new technology and uh, border control uh, law. Uh, she's um, identified uh, a, a series of um, concerns about the use of technology in this area, uh, concerns, for example, about automated uh, decision-making uh, in, um, uh, in the border control setting uh, because of concerns about uh, how some of the data that might be used to uh, train uh, machine learning uh, models that 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 are used for automated decision making uh, might include um, a racial uh, bias, uh, for uh, uh, example, um, uh, concerns about uh, um, the uh, accuracy uh, of uh, some of the tools that are being um, developed uh, in the EU. For example, there have been uh, tools uh, that attempt to uh, help. Um, 
customs agents detect uh, falsehood uh, by using kind of video of um, uh, of uh, interactions between uh, customs agents and um, uh, and uh, uh, travelers. Uh, but you can imagine quite uh, easily that if you uh, have kind of a, a large data set of um, uh, interviews, uh, w- uh, video interviews uh, with uh, uh, travelers, and if we know that uh, customs agents are, for example, more likely to send uh, people who are um, uh, kind of young brown men uh, into a secondary, and if you ask the um, uh, the, the machine learning um, uh, algorithm to predict, is this person someone that we should pull into secondary? What's it going to look for? It's going to look to see if the person is a, a young brown man, brown man, and if so, going to you know, say, oh, this person's probably, um, uh, probably uh, someone that we need to take a closer look at. So uh, there's just a real concern about bias uh, and how the technologies might uh, uh, further uh, reinforce um, uh, a bias uh, in uh, this uh, area. And so we're doing a whole bunch of projects that try to bring increased transparency, um, make sure that the public is aware of the tools that the government is using in this area and uh, offering kind of critique, um, offering uh, recommendations about uh, how this area should be regulated. That's one big set of things that we're doing. The other the big set of things that we're doing is that we want to move beyond just critiquing um, uh, the technology, and we actually want to develop some technology that's going to be rights enhancing. Uh, so for example, we just got funding from the Law Foundation of Ontario to build a web application that would assist uh, refugee lawyers in drawing on the uh, data that I've been putting together for for years about uh, um, immigration and refugee board members and uh, uh, federal court judges and provide um, uh, that information to um, uh, lawyers uh, in a way that will let them uh, make uh, kind of strategic uh, choices about uh, how uh, they uh, make their arguments. So, for example, uh, if you're um, uh, if you're uh, in federal court and you're arguing a case involving sexual orientation uh, by a claimant uh, from uh, Uganda, there's a whole bunch of cases that you might uh, look to that might be relevant to uh, your um, uh, your uh, argument. Um, and you can use kind of traditional legal research strategies to figure out which of those cases are kind of most important at an abstract level. You look to see, well, which cases are more frequently cited? Is there a higher court uh, decision? Which ones are kind of most helpful uh, to me? And um, that's how you decide which of the cases you're going to refer to in your uh, legal memos. But once you know who your judge is, once you walk into the, uh, uh, the, the courtroom and you know, okay, now I know I've got Judge X, uh, how do you know which of the many cases that you've cited are the ones that Judge X cares about? And using the data that I have put together, I can say, for example, that Judge X in sexual orientation cases 
when Judge X has gone positive, these five cases have been cited. And when Judge X has gone negative, these five cases have been cited. And so you know, of the 40 cases that, I, that are in my memo, here are the three that I really want to focus on. And so the idea here is to uh, develop um, some uh, technology uh, that will be uh, open access, that will be uh, free uh, for uh, lawyers to use, and that will leverage um, uh, new technology in this area in a way that enhances rights. We want to do this for both because we think that the tool will, in fact, be useful, but also because we want to push back against what we see as the problematic business model in the development of legal technology. Most legal technology today, some of the exciting stuff that's being done around machine learning, legal analytics, most of it is happening in for-profit companies uh, that are using proprietary um, tools uh, and data that's not uh, available uh, to the public. And the companies are understandably, because it's expensive to develop these tools, they're charging a lot uh, for access to those tools. What does that mean? That means that um, uh, that means that uh, lawyers who uh, are representing uh, kind of institutional clients, government or big companies, or uh, high net worth uh, clients, uh, get access to this kind of technology because the lawyers can pass the costs on to their clients who can afford it. Um, and uh, lawyers uh, working with marginalized low-income people don't get access to the same technology. And the direct result of all of this is that the technology is developing in really exciting ways, but it's developing in exciting ways that are amplifying existing power imbalances. And what we're trying to do at the lab is show there's an alternative. The technology doesn't have to develop exclusively in proprietary ways for in for-profit corporations. We can have partnerships with academics like me, with uh, uh, organizations like the Law Foundation of Ontario that can help us create uh, innovative, open access um, technology that will uh, advance the rights and interests of low-income and marginalized folks. So those are the kinds of projects that, uh, that I'm really excited to be uh, working on uh, at, uh, at the lab. And I hope uh, in the coming months that maybe uh, uh, you and uh, your uh, colleagues will have an opportunity to use some of the technology that we're developing. I look forward to it. Um... I, I hope that uh, I can use it soon because I have a bunch of cases coming up and I'm, I'll send you the names of the judges and maybe you can give me the info I need. To, usually I just look for the cases they've decided and cite them back at them if they're helpful. <laughs> anyway, it sounds like it's really exciting uh, research, Sean, and it's a pleasure to um, chat with you as always. And uh, thank you for all the work that you've done. Thank you for the contributions you've made. Uh, we really, really appreciate it. And well, thank you, Lauren. I enjoyed the conversation. You've been listening to Four Questions Four by Osgood Hall Law School. We hope you'll join us again next time.